thinking is the the essence from which all other things are made and yet we cannot reach it directly we have to go through the elements Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. As we take a break from recording, we have chosen to replace several of our greatest hits for you to enjoy. We hope that you are able to gain insight for your educational journey. So today's episode, you're going to teach everyone how to think, right, Andrew? Huh. Well, if I could do that, I'd be a miracle worker. But we can contemplate the subject together. And I think we're all, if we're honest, we're all on a path of learning to think better. Right. right. And no one does no thinking. The question <laughs> is all about quality of thinking, right? Right. And it's actually recently when we redesigned our logo, we added think as a part of who we are. So previous episodes, we talked about listening, speaking, reading, and writing, which are the four language arts. So I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation about thinking as well. Oh, that's lovely. It mirrors the quintessence. Remember in medieval alchemy, there's <laughs> fire, air, water, and earth. Yes, I remember this. No, I don't remember Right, this. And then the fifth element is ether. And that's why it's the fifth essence. And ether is the substance which the other four are made of. So when you have quintessential, oh. you oh. have the, the penetrating essence of everything. Ah, huh. quintessential. I like that. Never even contemplated that. It's one of uh, the kids' favorite words in the student writing intensive. Uh, L-Y wordless, quintessential. So thinking is... Quintessentially. Quintessentially, correct. So it's almost as though thinking is the, the essence from which all other things are made, and yet we cannot reach it directly. We have to go through the elements oh. to find it alchemically. So we teachers of writing here are alchemists in a sense. Oh, I love this idea. Oh, we have a new calling now. <laughs> Medieval alchemists. <laughs> So I was, I actually just did a little web search before we went into this recording to find out how many website hits there would be on this term critical thinking. And we hear this thrown around a lot in education ease. And here's a, actually a little statement from San Francisco State University, a place that you, I believe, have darkened their doors on occasion. <laughs> For one school here. Right, right. So define critical thinking according to San Francisco State. They say, while there are multiple definitions for critical thinking, there exists a consensus on the idea that critical thinking is a willed cognitive activity dedicated to making reason judgment by conducting analysis and by monitoring our own thought processes and emotional responses. And I just, I, you know what, I have an advanced degree. I have an MBA. And yet, I think critical thinking, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> A famous line. I had a similar, almost opposite experience. Uh, I was at a schools conference, and not far from our booth was 
some small little publishing booth selling a book called uh, Developing Critical Thinking Through Writing. And so, of course, a title like this would attract me, so I picked up the book and I started looking at it. A very small company. It was actually the publisher who was at the, the booth, not the author, but the publisher. And so I just kind of asked her, how would you define critical thinking? And there's about a 30-second pause. Right. And then she said, that's a good question. <laughs> so it is certainly buzzwords. Um, but I think what we've discovered is that there is a path towards thinking better. And it is teachable. It is learnable. It is practicable and practical. And yet it is not necessarily common. Right, right. And, you know, even as you're using the word thinking, I can't help but think of your discussion about the ing words that it's not something that you can just read in a book and discover how to do it it's a skill it's to be skill. taught yeah and something we can learn and it's kind of a fun experiment i like to do uh usually with groups of teenagers you know if i get a big group of, of high school students and just ask them the question how do you think how's it done if someone says think now about this how do you make that happen? And of course, that's kind of what the writing prompt mm -hmm. is all about. You know, people have to go in and take the ACT or SAT or some kind of standardized writing test or something. And it, it says, what do you think about this? Or what's your opinion on that? And uh, analyze this or relate and experience that. And then they get that blank page. Right. right. And I think we've all had that. Right. That kind of blank brain blank page kind of frustration and the solution there is to know the trick of how to think right but the kids are very honest uh, the most common answer that I get is you use your brain mm -hmm. okay great how do you use your brain mm -hmm. mm, I don't know you just think of stuff you know it just happens for many people it's kind of a passive intransitive type of feeling the verb it just happens right you know for some people thinking is well you know if 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 i wait around for a while it'll come to me <laughs> right of course the problem is it doesn't come to you generally it has to come out of you right and we left off one of our earlier podcasts with pointing that out you don't get something out of a a mind that isn't in there to begin with so you have to furnish the mind mm -hmm. with ideas. And then when we're thinking, we're recalling from our experiences, from the ideas that we've taken in through reading and discussion and contemplation. And I'm sure there is a bit, uh, you know, on the side of, of supernatural inspiration that can happen. But even that, in a way, is limited to the words that we know. Right. Uh, it has to, to come into the the physical world so to speak through concrete words and sentences so uh, i kind of push this a little bit with the kids you know how do you think some some kids are are wonderfully honest you know i have no idea and then once in a while you get a good answer probably the best answer i got was this uh, little boy up in alaska he's probably 13 14 and he said well to think of stuff you kind of have a conversation with yourself. Nice. And I thought, now that that's the best answer I've had. I've had adults who will say, well, thinking is a, you know, an internal 
discussion, a hmm. a cognitive right self interaction. You know, stuff like you read from that paper. Um, but in its simplest form, then thinking is having a conversation with yourself. And how do you start a conversation? Do you ask a question? Sure. Why are we having a podcast so we can ask questions of each other right. and think together? And it's of course easier to think together than all alone, uh, especially since we kind of have this habit of talking to ourselves uh, mm. trained out of us. You know, it's generally not thought to be a socially acceptable <laughs> behavior. Um, although young children do this naturally, don't they? Right. You look at, at kids who are three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, they'll be all alone in a room with their toys or whatever, having a nonstop dialogue often, uh, talking to their invisible friends or their toys or to themselves, narrating stuff. And that's essentially kind of how you learn to hear what you are thinking. Right. Uh, and then as we get a little bit older, we're to, told to, no, sit down, be quiet, only talk when you have permission. And so we have to internalize that that vocalization and have that internal audiation uh, so that we can you know operate in the real world. Although my my good friend Andrew Kern says it's when you don't talk to yourself that you start to go crazy. <laughs> right, right. Or or you could do what I do, which is I have meetings all day long <laughs> so that we can all talk to each other yeah. and we have good ideas when we talk yeah. to each and other. Then. When you get a little bit older, you can start talking to yourself again. Right. <laughs> People forgive it at a certain age. Although now you could just put one of those Bluetooth things in your ear, talk to yourself all day. Nobody would know you weren't on the phone. Yes. But, exactly. you know, just talking to yourself isn't necessarily going to develop better thinking skills. But it is the starting point to understand that it that it is about asking questions. And uh, it's funny, you know, I go around and... You drop humor into the talks you give just to kind of see if the audience is alive or awake. And no, not everyone does that, Andrew. You do that. Well, and you do that very well. That's that's something I enjoy. But one of the things I'll kind of joke, I'll say something like, and and it seems today in our world there's kind of an epidemic of non-thinking. Yes. And uh, actually, nobody disagrees with that. Right. Uh, we may disagree with the the behavior that results from what non-thinking is right but uh, i think we can all all agree that certainly the thoughtfulness of the average people today yeah. is considerably less if we were to compare it to a couple hundred years ago when you had your average adult reading the federalist papers right and discussing it you know what what do we now discuss you know our facebook and instagram kind of thing <laughs> uh so this ref is reflected then uh, in education, and in particular in writing, mm. because it's in writing more than anything else that you have to think right. in order to do the activity uh, in in a linguistic way. So the other question, I guess, would be, is this kind of non-thinking accidental? Mm. Are, are we just accidentally becoming less thoughtful, or are there influences mm. that have done this? It's a dangerous place to go. Yes. One one thing that we could point at is is the phenomenon, the modern phenomenon of entertainment. Sure. Uh, Neil Postman pointed this out in Amusing Ourselves to Death 50 years ago that, um, well, I guess 80, so 30 years ago when he wrote that, um, we are in an entertainment culture where we very passively 
just accept, you know, television and movies and whatever. And then one study I read showed that you actually have less brain activity while watching a sitcom than while staring at a blank wall. Well, of course, if you're staring at a blank wall, you would have to be thinking, thinking. of something, <laughs> remembering something, imagining something, or you die of boredom. But, but television makes it possible to not think and not die of boredom at the same time. So we, and we all grew up on that. Yes. So it formed our intellect. The other thing we might notice is kind of a, uh, a change in education that began mm. in the late 1800s and early 1900s where uh, kind of a shift from more the traditional liberal arts of, of learning grammar and logic and rhetoric and mathematics and geometry in a, in a way to develop skills of thinking and, and communicating and problem solving into uh, a, a model that was more to train people to be able to do jobs. Right, yep. And uh, you can even go read about it. Uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie Mellon, they were about industry. They were about productivity. They were about integrating immigrant populations and mm. having a nice kind of controllable, trained force of factory workers, voters, and consumers who would do and vote and buy what they were told to. And so uh, Rockefeller wrote about it and his committee that put a huge amount of money and effort into education reform in the early part of the 1900s, made no bones about it. He said, this is what we must do to become a powerful industrial nation. And so education gradually shifted from, from how to think mm. to what to think. Interesting, right. And, and we even see that today. You know, if average kid goes to school, they give him information, even before he asks for it. right. And then massage it around a little bit with games or homework or whatever. And then he goes back to school and then they ask him the questions, right? Right. If he gives the right answers, wins the game. Wrong answers, lose the game. Refuse to answer, get kicked out. Right. Which is why you find very often super intelligent kids in the alternative ed programs. Right. Right. You know, they, they hit sixth, seventh grade, they start hitting adolescence, they start to see what's going on. They think, I, if I stay here, this could destroy my mind. Mm. You know, I, I've got to escape somehow. Mm -hmm. And I remember just daydreaming about how could I not be here? You know, what, what could I do to get out of here? I wasn't brave enough, of course, to commit a minor crime or, you know, do something to actually get kicked out. But I dreamed about it. And, uh, and then they go into alternative programs where they're very, very differently structured. Right. And they can often thrive. Right. So now there are always exceptions. I, I mean, I'm not talking about teachers because there are so many good teachers who understand students and, and understand that they themselves are to some degree handicapped, mm -hmm. handcuffed by the system mm -hmm. the way it is. And most good teachers know that, but they stay there because they love children. Right. You're like John Taylor Gatto, who, who knew what the system was, but stayed there because he felt he could really make an individual difference in individual kids' lives. Right. Uh, but his book, Underground History of American Education, fascinating documentation of what I've been talking about, the, the industrialization of education to change its purpose. And now we're in the information age, and we're not in an industrial age. Right. So what we have now is a group of people labeled by Peter Drucker as knowledge workers, and yet 
they how much knowledge do they have that they're able to do something productive with because they may not have the skills to be able to think. Yeah. And uh, Tony Wagner in the Global Achievement mm-hmm. Gap, uh, he's a professor from Harvard, a big think tank there about, you know, what do we need to do right. to, to make our educational system fit the modern need? Some people disagree about that, but most people agree that what we have is not what we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, getting a little back on track, we as teachers of writing, we're, we're almost subversive to this system because we're forced to teach children how to think better in order to accomplish the task of how to write better. So I think about the pathway that we offer in our structure and style syllabus and how that lends itself to learning to think starting at a very easy level and then going into more complex levels. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a gradual path of increasingly challenging questions. Mm-hmm. So we started at unit one and two. The question is very simple. What are the keywords in this sentence? Right. But to ask that question, you kind of have to ask yourself, what does this sentence mean? Mm-hmm. You have to read more carefully. You can't just watch the words go by and think you understood it which is what a lot of kids do. Right. Um, you have to say, what does this mean? What are the words that would carry the meaning from the sentence into the outline? So it's a simple question, but you have to ask it. Um, we've had, and I, I know you've heard me say this before, but any number of uh, special ed teachers, right. parents with kids who had reading disability, learning disability, say that just doing the keyword outline changed the way in which they read Mm. because they had to read a sentence, stop, ask a question about Mm -hmm. the sentence. Mm -hmm. That's called thinking. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, unit three. You don't get every sentence. You get something much bigger and more complex, a whole story. And the questions you have to ask are, what are the key parts of this story? What are the characters and setting? Who, where, and when? Um, What is the problem or conflict? And what do the characters think, say, or do in effort to solve that? How is it resolved and what message is behind it? That very simple little story sequence chart we teach in the Unit 3 is, is actually beginning this teaching of the thinking skills of asking the questions. The thing is, you don't really have to figure out what questions to ask yet because it's on that chart. Right. You can kind of run the little litany of questions, get the habit of asking yourself questions, and retell a story and then internalize what are the elements of a story in preparation for maybe writing your own more original stories. Yeah, and what you're describing right now, a child is asking themselves those questions and coming up with the answers, but not initially by herself at first. She's That's being modeled. It's modeled, and we encourage, you know, get the chart on the wall. Right. You know, get the, the who, when, where, and the what, and what do they think, say, do, and the how, solve. Get it in in the environment <laughs> so the student can kind of constantly be reminded right you know that's the process then we go over to unit four we get a little bit harder questions there um there's too many facts you need to summarize you can't choose all of them you can only choose some of them which is why i wish that word were actually mm-hmm. spelled s-o-m-e hyphen a hyphen r-i-z-e because you're summarizing you're not retelling all of it you're retelling some of it. but the question is what some of it, mm-hmm. and and that's where the choices have to be made. Because you can't do it all. You can't do it all. That's a life lesson right there. It is a life lesson right there, 
And so then we, we try to help the students, you know, tell what, what is relevant to them. What do they feel, not feel, but what do they experience as being interesting? Mm-hmm. What do they think might be more important than something else? Uh, what is relevant to the mm-hmm. questions you're asking? Uh, and uh, everybody can have a different perspective. Sure. You know, if you you read a book and I read a book and Michael read a book, and then we started to talk about it, we would probably discover that each of us found different parts of it to be more meaningful. Right. Uh, and so it's that sorting through, and that that's actually a thinking skill. It, it can be traced all the way back to, you know, Aristotle's topics of invention. Mm. Uh, but, but we do it in a simple way. Then unit five, pictures, you don't have a story, now you really have to ask some questions. You know, the who, what, where, why, when, how, what happened before the picture, what might happen after the picture, is there anything outside the picture? Unit six, multiple re- references. Now you not only have too many facts, you have too many books with too many facts, too many sites with too many facts, just too much. Yes. How do you sort through that right. overwhelm of information? And that's a skill. That's right. a sorting skill, a filtering mm. skill, limiting skill that is so valuable in the workplace today. Right, yes. Um, and then Unit 7, that's where we get to the blank page. Right, and we used to call that creative writing. Yes. And I remember, actually, it was just a couple of years ago, you were doing an in-service in Dallas for some teachers there, and you were talking about uh, just doing an inventory of your brain. And I've heard you speak before, even before I was sitting in on that in-service, that invention, the root word of invention is inventory. And I thought, that's what our Unit 7 is. That's creative writing. Yeah. Well, it, it shares the same Latin root, which is invenio, mm-hmm. which means to find or discover. Right. So when you're taking the inventory, you find and discover the stuff you have in your mind or, right. or, or kind of the brainstorming. Right. Then you use the inventory to invent the content, to create the content. And some people would call that, well, that's real writing, which for years and years we have labeled as creative writing, which really isn't creative writing, but it is that blank page, here's a prompt, have right. have fun well, with that. The Latin root for creative is creo, creare, right? Creo meaning to create, literally, ex nihilo, you know, to produce something from nothing. Yeah. Uh, but when you, when you point this out to people, it's so freeing. You don't have to produce something from nothing. You don't have to create something completely new and original that never existed before. You just have to find stuff and put it together in a new way. And then that process of thinking and organizing, that's the invention process of of finding and putting together and organizing and presenting. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad we, we shifted to that word invent, in, inventive writing. And of course, if we look at the five canons of classical rhetoric, again, going back a long, long way, invention was the first one. Hmm. How, what to say. Right. Finding what to say because, you know, that logically that kind of does come first because then you worry about how to arrange it, how to say it stylishly. Uh, so find what to say. And then, of course, uh, how to think with increasing depth Mm-hmm. that's the question of critical thinking. Right. Right? So, you know, uh, my, my friend Martin Cothran, who uh, wrote the logic programs for mm-hmm. Memorial Press, you know, he says, really, honestly, critical thinking is using logic. And what is using logic? It is 
asking questions. Mm -hmm. What are the premises? What is the conclusion? Is it a valid argument? Right. Uh, simple thinking like that could clear up a lot of confusion <laughs> in, right. for many people. Um, so what we do is we kind of, uh, as we hit Unit 7 and 8, which is the formal essay, where our kind of fact-gathering and presenting combines with our thinking and having opinions about things, right? That, right. that Unit 8 is kind of the synthesis of those two sides of the syllabus. We start with the basic ones, you know, the who, what, when, why, where, how, for, you know, just the basic brain inventory. Right. And then if we're writing for a certain purpose, such as descriptive writing, maybe a narrative, or or we want to paint a picture that mm -hmm. will help with our uh, persuasiveness, then we may ask the sensory questions. Right. You know, the extension of what? What do we see? What do we hear? What do we taste, touch, smell? Smell is not one that comes to mind right <laughs> off, but, but those sensory questions are very helpful so that we can, we can do that. And then there's a, another category, which would be starting to, to do that critical thinking and wax philosophical. What is, the, what is the best thing about something? What's the worst thing about something? Um, are there any problems with something? If there's problems, are there solutions? Right. And what are they? Um, what is the value of this? What are the causes and, and effects? What are the, what, what's the meaning of that? That, those waxing a bit more philosophical, harder for young children, right. but they push toward that higher level of thinking. And I would assume that when, when I say that list of words, people who hear me say it have the same experience that I do when I say it, which is I kind of mentally apply those words to different situations in the world. And if we could ask objectively, what is the value? Right. You know, and, and then have logic skills to support <laughs> our conclusions, we would make better decisions. I guess one last thing is, is there's a, a thinking skill called division mm. that is really so helpful, especially the kids first hit unit seven, and that is to take a thing and look at its components. You know, rather than just a tree, what are some things about aspects of topics pertaining to trees, types of trees, um, seasons of trees, parts of trees, things that live in trees, symbolic trees. If you're my son, it would have been uh, climbing and building forts. That's right. But but when, then you're not just seeing a tree, you're seeing into a tree. Right. And then you could actually take any one of those topics, make it a subject unto itself, and divide it into various topics and you could take one of those and divide that and so this process of division is really the skill then of seeing into the thing apprehending it and that is the first step in any type of writing and analysis thinking so we need that skill of division and then uh, we can pursue that at a later date and talk about some of the uh, common topics of aristotle that are reflected in our modern questions, uh, but have their roots in some guys who really sat and thought around long and hard about how to think better. Right, right. So, so many great topics that we can be talking about. You mentioned earlier motivation. You mentioned about the canon, and now more, more thinking. I think we're gonna have to do some more podcasts about this idea of thinking. I think, <laughs> I think, 
we all need to have more conversations about thinking. Just this idea of IEW is a writing program that's good for anyone. It works for everyone. And it is funny because some people, if they see it in the homeschool, they say, oh, that's good there. And if they see it in the classroom, they'll say, oh, it's good there, but it wouldn't work here. And it works for anyone who wants to learn how to teach it and put their best foot forward, they will get results. I know Janet probably has some great stories to share with us, successes in schools. So we'll look forward to that. Thanks so much for joining us for one of our favorite episodes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or you can visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. New recordings will begin airing in January of 2020. Until then, we hope you'll join us each week as we revisit our greatest hits.